This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and I'm so glad you're here today at Self Work. We're going to be talking about choosing a therapist, and that's what I am. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been in private practice now for 25 years in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I'm here to really share the wisdom of the patients that I've seen, the things that I've watched them go through and learn from them about how you get through very, very difficult times, through depression, through anxiety, and through grief and loss. Today, we're going to be talking about a particular aspect of choosing a therapist. And this question actually came from a listener. How much does your therapist need to be like you? How much do you need to believe that they've experienced what you've experienced? And how could they possibly understand something that they've not experienced? I have some things for you to consider, at least from my perspective, after doing this for 25 years. And remember, I've been on both sides of the couch. I've been a patient. In fact, I often say that I'm a therapist because I got good therapy. Well, I've been the patient several times, in fact, and I've been the psychologist. I've had some recent experiences with people asking me some questions about my own life that have really highlighted this particular issue in our culture today. Then our listener email today is from someone who had listened to Podcast 69 on victim-savior relationships and wanted to know if there was any way to change the dynamics of those kinds of relationships. Interesting question. So let's talk about choosing a therapist, and we'll discuss victim-savior relationships again. So glad you're here. Several months ago, I got a call from a potential client. She asked a question I'd actually never heard. I need to know who you voted for in the election. Now, I've been a therapist for over 25 years. I've been asked if I was divorced, married, how old I was, whether or not I was a Christian, and certainly what methods I used in therapy. More than once, I've been asked if I'd personally been through what the caller was struggling with which sometimes is a question that may reflect the intensity of the pain he or she is in. Basically, you couldn't understand or help if you haven't been through this, and that's certainly their choice to make. But never had I been asked about my vote. Now, the question revealed how strongly this woman felt about not being safe if my political beliefs weren't aligned with hers, and, of course, culturally, how politically charged these differences have become something that I'm sure you're very aware of. She said she couldn't continue our conversation without an answer. So I wished her well, but explained that there was a boundary between my personal and professional life, the same answer I'd given for this kind of question for many years. She certainly deserves to find someone that might have voted the same way she did. If that's important to her, that's fine. And of course, I hope she got some help. So should your therapist be like you? Are they better for you if they've walked the same walk you have? It's a good question. Males might prefer male physicians for certain problems, and women prefer women. You may feel better knowing that they've experienced life with the same hormones and body parts you have. 
It's why people want to know what someone's spiritual faith or even political party is, so they feel bolstered by knowing that they already have a connection. It may help with trust initially. It's why support groups can be very effective, which by definition are composed of people whose experience parallels yours enough for you to feel understood, as others may want to understand or try very hard, but can't pull it off. I mentioned in a previous podcast that I was involved several weeks ago in a workshop for parents whose children had tragically died. As those who'd somehow managed to breathe and put one foot in front of the other after this tragedy happened in their lives, I watched as they comforted and supported others whose loss was very raw. I felt very humbled in the presence of such suffering, as I often do in my own office. Yet, I also chose to offer what I could. Not having the personal tragedy those people were trying to live through, but what I've learned from my work with other horribly bereaved parents. So, what's better? Which way should you go if you choose to go into therapy? Should you look for a therapist who's been through what you've been through or not? I inferred it before, but it comes down to choice. Whether or not you choose someone whose life has been similar to yours or what you know of their life has been similar to yours. For example, plenty of people have come to me because they know I've gone through infertility, I have anxiety, or they've read that I was anorexic at one time. They know that I've walked that path and it's valuable to them. Whatever defenses you're putting up, however you may be avoiding the work you need to do, you may give that therapist more permission to help or even confront you because they've been there. Remember, however, in this case, that it's important with that choice to feel that your therapist has worked on themselves enough to guide and lead, and that they're not doing their own healing work on your time. The relationship should be about you, not them. That therapist earns your trust by listening with educated ears, showing empathy, offering at times difficult observations or ideas, providing a safe emotional relationship and focusing on goals for healing and change. On the other hand, many patients have come in and don't know a thing about me except what their lawyer, doctor, or friend had to say, or whether or not my website was helpful to them. More often than not, I haven't experienced a similar history. I've not been personally exposed to gang violence, child pornography camps, secret rooms where women were sexually brutalized, horrific parental abuse, war crimes, or the murder of a loved one, all histories I've sadly taken. Nor have I experienced some of the same mental problems. I've never wanted to die. I don't have a compulsive need to shop, steal, or lie. I don't have erratic mood swings that seem to appear out of nowhere. And yet, those are things that I've tried to help with and treat. Then there are differences that are based on more pragmatic facts, I grew up in the South. My family wasn't a military family, or poor or unstable. The only color skin I will ever have is white. Those things may inherently limit my personal perspective, but hopefully not my professional one. I can't know how it might have felt if those pragmatic things would have been different. But I've learned how others have felt and what they've experienced and how I've watched them heal. How do I handle such obvious differences between me and my patients? I ask questions. 
and try to educate myself about my patient's world, both past and present. I remember having a Mormon couple many years ago. I was in graduate school. I knew nothing about the Mormon faith, so I read about it. Those kinds of differences where people have grown up in a world or live in a world currently that I don't have any exposure to, then I do my best to try to understand. So what if you choose a therapist who has not necessarily walked your walk? Guess what? This therapist also earned your trust by listening with educated ears, showing empathy, offering at times difficult observations and ideas, providing a safe emotional relationship, and focusing on goals for healing and change. It's the same process. Now, you might be asking, well, how do I find out what a therapist's experience is? We're lucky enough to live in a time where most professionals have their own website. Often therapists do give some personal information, what they believe in, what kind of problems they have experience within. You can get a feel for who they are and how working with them might be. You can also ask around, of course. You have to reveal that you're searching for a therapist. But especially if the therapist has been working for a while, they probably have developed some kind of reputation. And remember, you can always speak with a therapist personally before you meet with them. That's not an inappropriate request at all. Now, it may be their protocol to have their staff or secretary make appointments for them, but most therapists will answer your questions or offer information before you come in for an initial session. In that conversation, if you feel a connection, then you can sense that they care and that the relationship will work well for you. And if you don't sense that, If you don't experience that with them in the first or second session, don't go back. Therapists can be very different, and it's important for you to feel that support. As I said in the introduction, I'm a therapist because therapy helped me see things in my life that I was struggling to see by myself, things that were causing chaos and pain. Whomever you choose, whether it's someone who's walked your walk or someone who doesn't necessarily have that same experience, but who you feel comfortable and safe with, please reach out. It's worth the time, the effort, the money, and the risk. I know. I've been there. Our listener email today is from someone who listened to episode 69 that was on a victim-savior relationship and it really made her stop and think, gave her another perspective on the relationship she had been struggling with for now a couple of years. She gives me her name and says, I'm 22 years old. I moved to South Carolina from Northern California about four years ago with my sister. I've always been strong-willed, and I wouldn't take gifts from young men I dated. If someone didn't act right, I walked away. No skin off my teeth. (laughs) I love that phrase. I moved in with my parents about two years ago because I was going back to school and needed to save money, but we constantly butted heads, and I kind of internalized it, I guess. When I met my boyfriend only a couple of months after I moved in with them, I was elated. He was sweet, and I could tell he was special, so I moved in with him. We were together officially for about a year and a half, my longest relationship, but last year we broke up. I'm still dealing with depression and anxiety, and it feels like I've lost a best friend. I don't know how to recover from this, and it's sending me back to a dark place. I still struggle because I don't have butterflies, 
or an overwhelming feeling that he's the one, but I truly care for him. I would constantly Google fear of intimacy or how to know he's the one. Then a voice kicked in like, these are just excuses. You don't really love him. Your Victim Savior podcast was pretty eye-opening because I have been the victim in this relationship, but that's not where I'm comfortable. I hate being the victim or too dependent. There were times when I would come home from work and just dump everything on him. I didn't deal with the anger, the frustration. He would deal for me. Now I feel like I have to be around him to function. It makes me sick. I know I have resentment toward him because he has been the Savior. Before I listened to the podcast, I told him it felt too shaky. I'm going to move back in with my parents, and he's receptive to the idea of trying to change the relationship. Is there a way to create new boundaries so I can stand on my own again, next to him or not, or are we doomed? How can I be new after the slate has been wiped clean from the depression? Then she asked me to do a podcast about reinventing yourself after depression. Actually, it's a very good idea. So here's my answer. Hello. I can see why that podcast was meaningful to you. I never believe relationships are doomed, but they can take a lot of work. So if you and your boyfriend are committed enough to change, then there's a chance. I do want to point out to you that you moved in with him only two months after you'd met him. That's sort of a red flag already about the fact that it might have been a victim-savior relationship. I am a firm believer that it's ideal to wait until your own life is stable and happy before getting seriously involved with someone. But I'm also experienced enough to know that that rarely happens. We all jump in because we're lonely or scared or bored or struggling. Both of you would have to try very hard to change. But it does sound like your gut is fighting you on this one. And not very many good decisions are made out of fear. Good relationships, healthy relationships enhance your life, but you don't need them to be happy. Of course, as you grow closer, an interdependence exists, but not need. Need makes for anxiety and urgency. It seems also you have some healing to do with your parents and your own individual depression. There's some kind of tension past or present that is there, and no relationship with a boyfriend will heal that. So you need to find your own individual stability. I might suggest putting that work first. Hopefully your school has a counseling program that you could take advantage of. Episode 12 might also be helpful for you about becoming an emotional, quote-unquote, grown-up. Many of us get involved in relationships far too quickly. Myself included, I have been there, (laughs) certainly, in my lifetime. And yet waiting can be so important until... Whatever is happening with you, whether you're experiencing depression or you have in the past, but that you have a period of time where you have created your own stability, that can be so, so vital to choosing someone that you don't need, but that, as I said to her, enhances your life. I hope you find that person. I want to remind you to celebrate my 100th episode. I'm going to make it all about you. I will be answering your questions, so please email them to me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I've already gotten several, but we'll pick the ones that I think will mean the most to all of you. So send them on to me once again, askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. Thank you so much for the ratings and reviews. 
They are coming in, and I could not be more appreciative. They motivate me and help inspire me to keep on with self-work. As I said in the last podcast, I also carry quite a large practice, so this is something I do on the side, and I love doing it. I love hearing from you. I love being engaged. So I'm so glad to be here, but knowing that you want to be here too and are waiting to hear what is next on self-work really is fun and exciting for me. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com. You can head over there and subscribe and receive a blog post and a weekly podcast. And that's all you'll receive, I promise. So as we head into our 100th episode, I'm looking so forward to hearing from you and being a part of your lives for another 100. (laughs) I also have a new Facebook group that you can join, get a little more personal time with me. It's at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. That's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Thanks so much for being here. I hope this was helpful to you. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.